Good evening. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We are looking forward to jumping back into the book of Colossians together. We introduced it last week and, uh, and, and, and walked through um, the whole book and the purpose of it. Uh, before we jump in tonight, I'll just remind you, as Mike mentioned, at the conclusion of the service, we'll be observing the Lord's Supper. And uh, even now, be preparing your heart and uh, remembering the gospel. I think you'll see clearly as we walk through this passage tonight, uh, or this morning, that... Uh, <laughs> caught myself there. Uh, as we look through this passage this morning, um, that number one, you'll be awake and, uh, and you know, pay attention to the words that I'm saying. Um, and, uh, and two, that uh, you see the gospel truths for yourself. Uh, as we mentioned last time, that the, the church of Colossae was one that had uh, very little influence. It was a small, church, a small city, uh, but the church was growing. And the report was brought back to Paul, who was in prison, not only of their growth, but of a false doctrine that was creeping in. You know, it's said that if the Apostle Paul heard about the church in America, we would be receiving a letter. There is no doubt about it, right? But have you ever thought about if, if, if Paul was given a report about our church, what would he think? What would his letter be? Would it be a letter of rebuke, a letter of reminder, or a letter of thanksgiving? As we look in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, as we open into the body of, of this letter, as Paul often does, he starts with a prayer of thanksgiving. What does Paul thank God for? And as we see here, he thanks God first and foremost for the gospel. Read with me together Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, and we'll read down through verse 8. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for, to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth as you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray and ask God's guidance as we look at his word this morning. Lord, we are grateful for the incredible truths we find in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel this morning. Lord, I pray as we look at this church's testimony, how they received the gospel and grew in it, that it would be our desire to, to grow in, in the gospel ourselves. Guide us in your word this morning. Help us to be faithful to your word and that we would seek to apply your word faithfully. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank God for the gospel. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing here in this text this morning. In fact, if we were to isolate the main sentence of this passage, it begins at the very beginning. We always thank God. And everything else down through verse 8 modifies that sentence. What is Paul thanking God for? He is thanking God due to the report that he has received of the Colossian Christians. And as we look at our passage this morning, what has he heard about them? Well, he tells us in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and the love which you have to all the saints. On top of that, verse 5, because of or for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. He heard that this church had a faith in Christ, a love for each other because of the hope reserved for them in heaven. You could say, in short, he's thanking God because the Colossian Christians are walking in faith, hope, and love. And as he, can, he then connects this fruit to the reception of the gospel, he says, you're living this way because of the gospel that you have received. If you look in verse 5, after rejoicing in their faith, hope, and love, he says, of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And if you look down in verses 6 and 7, you see the arrival and reception of the gospel. He says, this gospel has come to you and that you've heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And you heard it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And then finally, we see the gospel described in this passage as the word of truth and the grace of God in truth. You might illustrate this passage actually by looking at a tree. If you use the illustration of a tree that Paul is giving thanks for the fruit that he's seeing, the fruit on the tree, which then prompts the question, how does this fruit get there? And the attention is drawn to the growth of the tree, which then prompts the third question, well, how did this tree get there? And the attention is drawn to the seed and the seed of the gospel. Why? Why this focus? Why does Paul begin this letter by thanking God not only for the gospel and what it is, but thanking God that the gospel has been brought to this church? He wants the Colossians to see that since they have Christ, they don't need these empty philosophies. And we saw that that was a major problem in our, in our sermon last week, that there was this philosophy that was creeping in that was part Judaistic in nature, telling them you need to do more and add more, and mystic and Gnostic in nature was saying you can experience more, you can reach this higher plane. And you'll notice in all of Paul's letters, his opening thanksgiving, his opening prayer often includes within it a very, the focus of his letter to come. And it's no different in the book of Colossians that because the gospel has been brought to them, that the fruit they are experiencing in their life is a direct consequence of the power of the gospel, you need nothing else. And without even calling out false teachers, he's instructing the Colossians as he gives thanks for their gospel growth. He reminds them of the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and the grace of the gospel, and then helps them see that this is why you are living lives of faith toward Christ and love toward each other because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He's reminding them in a way of what's most important and what's been brought to them and what they should treasure and cherish during this time of threat from false teaching. But today, I actually like to approach this, approach this passage in reverse order. We see that he begins with the fruit, then he kind of goes to the trunk of the tree, and then he focuses on the, the gospel seed. Uh, in our message today, I want to take that in reverse order. I want to begin with the seed, and then I want to consider what happens when that seed is sown, germinates, and takes root. And then finally, we'll look at the fruit it produces when that gospel truth is fully grown in our lives. And, and I think for us this morning, as we look at this passage, should respond the same way that Paul did, that we should respond by thanking God for this incredible gospel that has been brought to us. It's a gospel of grace. And if we take it for granted, if we just, if we forget about how glorious it is, then we're in danger of drifting toward those false teachings that were threatening the Colossian church. Only the gospel can transform our lives. So let's begin by seeing the gospel described. 
How does Paul describe this gospel seed that has been sown in the hearts of the Colossian believers? We see two main descriptions of the gospel, and both are absolutely key to combating the false teaching that they are facing. As we describe the gospel, we cannot assume a universal understanding of the gospel. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel message? Well, we see the gospel later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul says, You who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, God in flesh, has forgiven us our trespasses by paying for our sins on the cross, and that he rose from the dead to offer us free grace and redemption through the work of Jesus Christ alone. That's the gospel. And this is the gospel that was brought to the Colossians, and we'll see the first description in verse 5. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth. The gospel. In other words, the fruit in your life is due to the fact that you, are, you have heard the gospel, otherwise known as the word of truth. And here we see our first description. The gospel is truth. He reminds the Colossians, when you heard the gospel, you heard the truth. He, in fact, mentions this two times in this opening prayer of thanksgiving. The gospel is fact-based. It's transformative in our lives because it is true. It's rooted in reality. It is the story of events that actually happened. When someone believes the gospel, it means they accept historical fact about Jesus Christ that has been prophesied and fulfilled in Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says, We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Apostle John, in his letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning this word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And whenever Paul seeks to combat false teaching in the churches, it is the truth of the gospel that he emphasizes. For example, Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. These Colossians needed to be reminded that the gospel that was brought to them was the gospel of truth. It was fact. The moment we elevate attractiveness of a message over the truth of a message, we drift into false teaching. In other words, don't embrace a teaching because it sounds right. Embrace a teaching because it is true. It is rooted in reality. And so many philosophies and religions and worldviews of our day are shrouded in secrecy. They, they, they hold the facts of their belief tightly and hidden behind a veil so that those with an inquiring mind would not seek out and, reveal, and, and discover the falsehood in them. 
But the message of the gospel is plain. It's laid out. It's clear. These are the facts. These are the events. This is what happened. Here are the eyewitnesses. Here is what Christ did. The gospel is fact-based. In fact, the gospel of Jesus does not call you to check your brain at the door. Faith in Christ is not blind. The gospel is the word of truth. It's not a question of whether or not you decide that it's true. It just is true. Isn't that how often we approach what we believe and what we follow? We just decide what's true and what's not. And often what we decide is what's true and what's not is based off of our preference. Well, I like that. Therefore, it's true. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that is true because it appeals to me. But that's, that's, the gospel isn't worried about that. The gospel isn't worried about fashioning itself in such a way that you think it sounds great and therefore accept it. Rather, it, it fashions itself as truth. The question is, will we submit to that truth or not? The Colossians have heard the word of truth, and they believed it. And again, as we remind ourselves of the heresy creeping into the Colossian church, we're reminded of why truth is so important that an element of this false teaching was the promise of access to a higher plane, a hidden truth, if you will, set aside for all those who reach an elite level. If you, if you get this vision, if you if go, jump through these hoops, if you, if you go through these ascetic practices and severity, severe treatment of the body, you can reach this hidden truth as well. And Paul reminds the Colossians right here at the outset, the truth has already reached you. And not only has it reached you already, but you've grasped it. You've understood it. You've embraced it. And it is the truth that transforms, not myths. John prays, in, or Jesus prays in John 17, 17, sanctify them by, in the truth, your word is truth. Look with me down in verse 6 as we see the second description of the gospel. Verse 6 says, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is truth, but secondly, the gospel is a message of grace. Not only is the gospel an unavoidable truth, it is marked by available grace. You might call this the personalizing of the word of truth. The fact that the gospel is freely applied to you. It's one thing to assent to the facts about the gospel. It's another thing to truly understand the grace of God in the gospel. Romans chapter 3 verse 24 says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.15, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And of course, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. In the gospel, we see the unmerited favor of God as he reaches down to offer us salvation from the guilt and the shame that is brought on by sin, that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It is a message of truth. It is a message of grace. And again, consider why it's so important for Paul to emphasize this grace. The other component of this false teaching creeping into the church is this Judaistic teaching telling them to add more requirements to the gospel to jump through hoops in order to be accepted. And so Paul reminds them, when you receive the gospel, you received 
grace. And if the gospel is grace, there is no room for works. Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. You ask, why can't we add further requirements to the gospel? Why can't we add more works to the gospel? Because then it would no longer be the gospel. Because if it's by works, it is no longer by grace. And so at the outset of this letter, Paul describes the gospel seed, the fact of who Jesus is and what he has done are offered to you, a sinner, as a free gift by his grace. It is the gospel of truth. It is the gospel of grace. In fact, when we read of Jesus coming to this earth in John chapter 1, verse 14, what do we see? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. The Colossian church had everything they need in the gospel. They have the truth. They have grace. But as Paul thanks God for the gospel, he also reminds the Colossians about how they received the gospel. And so now we move from the seed itself to the process of that seed being planted, germinating, growing into a tree. And we'll pick it up here in verse 5 of our passage, where he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And so we see the gospel described, but also in this passage we see the gospel delivered. You know, as we wrestle through the philosophies and worldviews of this world, sometimes there's great stability in reminiscing, in remembering how you got where you are. And so Paul reminds them not only of what the gospel is, but how it got to them. In fact, remembering how you got where you are how the gospel came to you and the difference it made can be a powerful defense against drifting off course. In his letter to his Timothy, Peter tells his son in the faith that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil, imposters, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed and knowing from whom you learned it. He includes not only what you believe, but where did you get it from? Who taught it to you? And how from a childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember what you believe, but also remember how you came to believe it. And so I ask you the question, how did the gospel reach you? When did the gospel reach you? Who did God use to bring the gospel to you? And as you reminisce on your own testimony, perhaps you're reminded how could I think of rejecting such a gift that has been brought to me? How could I think that I need to add to anything of this gift that was brought to me? And you're reminded of its transforming power, and this is exactly the impact that Paul wants it to have on the Colossian believers. Let's just look at the delivery of the gospel in sequential order as it relates to the Colossians. What's the first thing that needs to happen? Well, it needs to arrive. The gospel needs to come to them. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. 
It all began with a man named Epaphras who brought the gospel to the city of Colossae. He brought the seed of the gospel. When did the gospel come to you? You know, maybe you've always been around it. Maybe the gospel, the word of truth and grace came to you later. Perhaps you remember the messenger that God used to bring that message of truth and grace to you. Look back for a moment. Consider, remember that word of truth and how it came to you. If you're flirting with false teaching, if you're doubting the truth of the gospel, take a moment and remember. Remember when you first heard the gospel. Remember the face of the one who shared the good news with you. Remember the impact that it had on your heart. The gospel arrives, but then secondly, and necessarily, the gospel is heard. Verse 6, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it. The gospel arrives and the gospel is heard by the Colossians. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Hearts are changed by the hearing of the gospel. But our passage shows us that hearing the gospel is not enough. Thirdly, the gospel must be understood. Not only did they hear the grace of God, but they understood the grace of God. They grasped its truth and its implications. They realized their sin. They saw the beauty of Christ's gift. This is far more than just mental understanding. To understand the gospel is to appropriate and apply it to your life. You see its implications. Have you understood the gospel. Yes, you've heard it. Perhaps if you've been raised in church, you've heard it countless times. It's old news, not good news to you, perhaps. Have you grasped it? Have you understood it? How does Paul know that they have understood the gospel? What does our passage tell us? How does he know that they've not only heard it, but they've grasped it, they've understood it? Well, we see the answer at the beginning of verse 6, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since you heard and understood it. So how does he know that they've heard and understood it? Because it's bearing fruit and it's increasing in their lives. From the very moment you heard and understood the gospel, it started to bear fruit and increase. In other words, the presence of fruit in your life reveals an understanding of the gospel. The seed of the gospel, truth and grace, has been implanted and taken root in the hearts of the Colossians, resulting in gospel fruit. So fourthly, the gospel bears fruit. This is the evidence that prompts Paul to thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is rejoicing that the gospel, which was delivered and heard and understood, is now bearing fruit in the lives of the believers. In fact, this process of gospel growth reminds me of the parable of the sower as told in the gospel accounts by Jesus. In that account, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 13, if you want to turn there, the, the seed Jesus interprets as the word of the kingdom. And if you know this parable, this sower is casting this seed on different types of ground and based off the type of ground, there's a different response. Starting in verse 19, he interprets this parable to us and says that some seeds fall on the path. And this is the soil that has the gospel delivered. The gospel is heard. But where does it stop? 
It, under, it stops at the understanding. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, and this is what was sown along the path. We read that some seeds fall on rocky ground. This is the soil that has the word delivered. The word is heard. And it's even received to some extent. But there's no root. There's no true understanding. Verse 20, For as for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. We read that some seeds fall on the thorny ground. This is the soil that has the word delivered and is heard, but other desires and cares choke out the word and there is no fruit. Verse 22, as for those who was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But some seeds fall on the good soil. And look at how the good soil is described, keeping in mind what we just read in Colossians. What happened in the Colossian church? The gospel arrives, the gospel is heard, the gospel is understood, and the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 23. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he indeed bears fruit. All of this together is meant to remind the Colossians you have the real deal. You have the gospel that transforms. You have the gospel that bears fruit in your life. Remember that. Reminisce about that. Think about how the gospel came to you, who brought it to you, how you understood it, how you embraced it. Remember the fruit it is producing, not just in your own life, but all around the world. This gospel is powerful. Look at what it has done in your own life. Again, if Paul heard your testimony, if a report of your testimony was brought to Paul in prison, would he have reason to thank God? Would he see the gospel fruit that evidences a heart that has both heard and understood the gospel? Can you look at your life and give thanks for the fruit that you're seeing? Are you seeing fruit? What gospel fruit did Paul give thanks for in the lives of the Colossians? Thirdly, we see the gospel displayed. This is the fruit of the tree. And here we return to the beginning of our passage in verse 4. Paul thanks God when he prays for the Colossians because he heard of three things. He heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for all the saints, and their hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. These are what I like to call in Scripture the big three, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 says, Remembering before God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These three are the fruits that the gospel produces in the hearts of a believer. For all the things we may point to as evidence of salvation, it's these three that sum it up. Faith, hope, 
and love. And yet there's a relationship, a sequence between these three. If you'll notice, Paul gives thanks, namely, for their faith and their love because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. In other words, they have faith and love because of the hope that they have. And so he points to hope as the basis. Christian hope is not a feeling of optimism. Christian hope is a guarantee based on the promises of God. As we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, hope does not disappoint. It does not put us to shame. That's Christian hope. The gospel seed of grace and truth, when it is received, when you receive a message of grace, and that message of grace is revealed to be absolute truth, then the result is bedrock hope. If you receive a message of grace, but you're not sure if it's truth, then it's an optimism. It's a, I hope it's true. If it's truth but no grace, then it's just more of a, a fact. It's just, it's just there. But when you combine them together, you get Christian hope. You get a full assurance. You get a confidence in the promise of God. This is what the gospel should first and foremost produce in your life, that when you receive the gospel, you have a hope. And not only is it just a hope, but it is a hope laid up for you in heaven. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you. By pointing to a hope that is set aside for us in the heavens, Paul refutes the false teaching being spread in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, about a worship of angels, about being puffed up, about visions. While the false teachers are offering these sneak peeks into heaven now, Paul is reminding them, you don't need that. The gospel has given you a steadfast hope that's reserved in heaven. It's set aside. You don't need anything else. It's a bedrock, steadfast hope. This is the basis. And Paul thanks God that this gospel hope has reached them. And what does this gospel hope, this basis, result in? Two things. First of all, we see the assurance of it found in faith in Christ. The fruit of faith which springs from the hope of the gospel is the assurance. What do we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Who is the object of this assurance? It's Christ Jesus. The hope laid up for you in heaven has been bought and secured by the work of Jesus Christ. And those who have understood and embraced the gospel cling to Jesus in faith. And they cling to nothing else. They don't cling to success or status or works. They cling to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the solution, is the one who brings them this bedrock hope. What else do we see this basis of hope resulting in not only faith in Christ, but we see the evidence, love. This is yet another inevitable fruit of those who have been transformed by the gospel. There is a love for the saints. And not only is there, we see a relationship between love as the basis between these other two, but we see a relationship between these two, faith and love. Faith in Christ is shown through our love for each other. Your love for the saints is the evidence of your faith in Christ. Faith expresses itself through love. 1 John 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You can see this connection between faith and love in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, there's the faith, for the, pur- for the purpose of a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. What is the ultimate evidence that you have had the gospel brought to you, you have heard the gospel, you've understood the gospel, you've received the gospel, and you have a hope and a faith in Christ? What's the ultimate evidence of that? You have a love for other Christians. And man, we point to so many other evidences that's not in that list to prove someone's faith in Christ. They're a faithful attender. They're always in church. That's great. I'm glad. That's not in this list. You may be competent and skilled, right? Other people are impressed by your scriptural knowledge or your ability to lead. That's wonderful. It's not in this list. You may be a person of influence. People naturally follow you. Wonderful. Not in the list. You have a strong Christian heritage. My parents are Christians, my grandparents are Christians. I was in the nursery, right? And now I'm, now I'm in youth group. I've been here the whole time, right? What more evidence do you need? I'll tell you what evidence do I need, what the Word needs, what the Lord needs. He needs to see faith, hope, and love. We point to so many other things. That person's a Christian. How do you know? First and foremost, we should ask, is there a love for the saints? that springs from a faith in Christ on the basis of a hope that is reserved in heaven for us. That is the ultimate evidence that the gospel not only has been received and heard, but also understood. If Paul received a report in prison of your testimony, and all that was included with things like there every Sunday, every Wednesday, teaches a Sunday school, served as a deacon, gave a lot of money, would he have reason to thank God for the clear and obvious evidence that that individual is a Christian? If you were to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what do we read about love? That, oh, I have a gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, even if I give my body to be burned but I don't have love. It's nothing. Do you have fruit of the gospel in your life? Is there a faith in Christ and a genuine love for, the, for other Christians that flows from a steadfast hope in the truth and the grace of the gospel? If so, that is reason to rejoice and everything else is bonus. When the Colossian church is being tempted to, with add-ons to the gospel, Paul brings them back to the simplicity of it. It's grace and truth. Paul reminds them of their story when the gospel first reached them. And Paul gives thanks for the simple yet sufficient fruit he's seeing in their lives. Faith, hope, and love. Do you thank God for the gospel? 
Are you rejoicing in the fruit it's producing in your life? Oh, we all have sins that we're struggling with and, and repenting of and working through. Do you see the gospel taking root and resulting in a genuine faith and a genuine love? If the gospel lacks sufficiency in your mind, if the hope of the gospel isn't quite enough for you, you hear about the bedrock hope of the gospel and you think, yeah, but... If you find yourself wanting more, then there will be those in this world who will try to promise you more. They will come to you and say, I see you're missing something. I see you have the gospel. That's great. I have it too, but you're missing something. Let me show you what you can add to it. Let me show you what you can experience more of. Who will try to pull you away from the hope of the gospel? They'll try to get you to do more or experience more. And in this opening passage, Paul invites the Colossian believers and as an extension invites us, come back to the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. Thank God that it has reached you. And I'll just say, if it has reached you and you have heard it, realize that that is not the extent of it. You must understand it. You must embrace it. So that through the gospel, that fruit can be produced in your life. As we'll continue through this, this book of Colossians, we'll see after he gives thanks, he offers a petition. He says, I want them to grow more and more in this knowledge and in this grace and in this truth. And I pray the same for us. Christ is over everything. And that is seen primarily in the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been brought to us. Can we pray together? Lord, we thank you so much for this gospel of truth, this gospel of grace. Lord, so many in this room can point to the time in their lives when that gospel seed of, of grace and truth reached their lives. That they were dead in their trespasses and sins and you came and made them alive through Christ. That you gave them a steadfast hope reserved in heaven for them. And as they grew in their knowledge of the gospel, you produced in them the fruit of faith and of love toward others. And Lord, we thank you for those testimonies. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here who is pointing to evidences for their salvation other than what you point to. If they're pointing to their own deeds, if they're pointing to an add-on, a bonus, rather than the genuine fruit of the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would allow them to look back and to consider and search and see if there is a true understanding of the gospel, if they have embraced that, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for giving us this.